Hello, and welcome to the next episode of the Health Disparities Podcast, conversations about health disparities with people who are working to eliminate them across the country with purpose and passion. I am Dr. Bonnie Simpson Mason, your host, and this week we are recording our conversations at the National Harbor in Maryland, where we are enjoying a packed program of speakers and workshops at the annual Movement is Life Caucus. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing and speaking with Dr. Patricia McManus. She is the president and CEO of the Black Health Coalition of Wisconsin and has been with that organization since 1988. She has a PhD in urban studies with an emphasis on health and human services from the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. She received a bachelor's and master's degree in nursing, also from UW-Milwaukee. And in February 2018, Dr. McManus was appointed as commissioner of the Milwaukee Health Department by the Common Council and was the first woman to hold that position. She is the recipient of this year's Movement is Life Vanguard Award. Um, and this award goes to our champions and pioneers who are making sure that healthcare disparities are diminished and health equity is increased across the country. You've been doing some great work in Wisconsin and in Milwaukee. We're just happy to have you here today and learn from you as well. Well, thank you very much. That all sounds good. (laughs) I I like that. Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) Welcome and congratulations. I know you spoke a bit about your work um, in Milwaukee back in the mid and then late 80s. Tell us what spawned the, your founding of the Black Health Coalition of Wisconsin, and talk to us a little bit about some of the work you're doing, and then we'll move into some of the other questions I have. Okay. Well, in, in 1984, Milwaukee decided to have a black conference on everything. It was just health, all the different areas. Okay. But then I, I was contacted to help put together the uh, specific piece on, on health, okay. get people in the community to talk, and out of that, Discussion was this was this need that kept saying that we we don't have a voice, we don't have a voice when we talk about healthcare. You know, we don't have a voice when people tell us even what we think we want to know and what we don't know. And so we got I got together with some other people that I work with. So so the group that kind of got together was it was kind of you know myself as a nurse, it was a physician, it was a, a pharmacist social worker, about five or six of us, you know, just kind of got together in my basement. That's where I tell people that's where it started. <laughs> right. And for the next five years, that's where the Black Health Coalition was. In my basement, that was the number. And well, we just talked about what we wanted to do. And we started out, because we actually called it the Black Health Planning Council first, because we, we thought education was extremely important, and it still is. Sure. But down the way, we realized, no, we got to do, we got we have to do advocacy. We, we got to be able to check people on what they're doing and how they're treating black people. Okay. Uh, we, okay. The more that stuff came up as we got the community more talking about what they wanted to see us do. So then, so like I said, but we formally uh, got it together in 1988 when we actually became the 501c3. Okay. That was when that happened. Um, and as I said, I, this was all done pro bono, which you still do. And um, then five years later, I always tell people that our office was my basement. You right, know, right, right. Phone number was that, you know, and then five years later, we actually got a grant from the Office of Minority Health, the Federal Office of Minority Health. They had a, they had a, uh, they had a coalition grant for um, minority or minority communities, and uh, and from what I can understand, ours is the only one that out of the ten they funded, ours is the only one that's still going on. Oh wow! 
you know. Outstanding. And, well, and we did a meeting because they had a couple times they had us meet with the other coalition members. And I don't know if that was the reason, but it seemed to me everybody else had, uh, they had university people, they had other folks outside of the community as part of it. Okay. Uh, and we just had us. <laughs> right. You know, right. I and it wasn't a it wasn't a um, negative thing for sure. the other folks, but we just felt if we're going to make some decisions that we think is important, we need to do that. And we had professional people that were doing that, and I think to some degree that may have been why we still there, even though within another five years it became more of an organization. And was I was the exec, and those folks were either sure. on the board or doing other stuff. But I think that's what's the longevity. I think is tied to the fact that. We were doing it for us, by us. There you go. You know, absolutely. And because uh, even when we have talked to some of the other folks, they they were listening more to to the universities and and I think maybe because of my background and some of the other people, we knew what we wanted to do already. Right, and that so, contributed to the sustainability of it. I, I, I really do think so. I love that. Yeah, that's good. That's good. That's a good take home <laughs> point for people who are looking to create sustainable change, mm -hmm. having the people who are invested in that community because it's their community. That's right. And being key players. Players and I tell folks so don't uh, don't give up your day job. Right. <laughs> that was another thing which I didn't do. I was I was um, teaching at Marquette at the time, my current university. Okay. School of nursing. Okay. And so I so that ten years I stayed there until we developed more. You know, and then still always work part time some other place. And I think that helped too, sure. uh, rather than um, than understand that you could do it. We took our time. Good. And I Good. was able. We were able to do that. And I think that yeah, I really do think that that's. And then it just got adopted by the community. I mean, from the very beginning, and we always had their support. But we had all all of us who were part of it already had a relationship with the community. Okay. So they trusted us. But that was important. Critical. That, that they trusted us and it was important that we maintained that trust. So so you hit on two things already that were really interesting. It sounds like your emphasis is on education and advocacy. Those are the main ones. Main right? two, okay. Mm -hmm. And it looks like there, you have four main task force forces mm -hmm. within the organization. It sounds like where education and advocacy are your primary uh, programs covering mental health, HIV and AIDS, mm -hmm. healthy beginnings, and health access. Right. And those were really kind of more tied to our, they were our primary ones because they were more tied to our funding we were able to get. I see. But we really didn't turn anything away that came up that we needed to do. You know, uh, we really felt that it was that, but the advocacy probably, the education and advocacy probably remains our strongest point and our neatest point. We need to be at the table. You know, we need to know what's going on. Because uh, we did move into some policy issues as well. Okay. Uh, over the years. Well, we know and we've heard recently that you know, with the um, population of African Americans in Milwaukee, that mm -hmm. there are significant disparities um, still in existence there. But it sounds like your organization has been able to make some impact right. within you know the African American community. Tell us a little bit about what you think your not what you think. What mm -hmm. have your successes been? Where have you seen? that you all have been able to make the most impact? I think probably one of our business, biggest impact is having the larger community of Milwaukee, especially in the health realm, but social services, all those kind of things, yes. respect uh, our community and what they know. Okay. We, we, we took time to train our community members so we weren't out there always saying stuff. They were doing it. And, uh, and actually, 
it, when the H1N1 virus was out, yes. CDC was going around to different cities um, interviewing communities to ask them, you know, relative to what was going on with H1N1, what they thought. So that I got a call saying that they wanted our task force of, of community people to come, and they would pay them $50. And as usual, they thought, you know, they thought was the $50, so they'll come and that'll be it, you know. So they were, and I couldn't stay for the whole thing, but I got called later that CDC was floored because they had gone to a lot of other cities, but they were floored by the knowledge that they had by their ability to ask questions, mm. by their ability to disagree if they did. Okay. They were they were full, they hadn't seen it before. I said, ah, oh, see, because it was that again that what you think about people and poor people and who they don't know and what they don't know. So that was one of the things that we and we still do that in terms of seeing that as as a very important need for us to not always be out front. We can if we need to be, but to help the community themselves have the information ask questions, challenge things, come back to us if they need help. Well, that's so. that's the give a man a fish and he eats for a day, teach a man a fish and he eats for a lifetime. Absolutely, and so we and we had more and more people, they would bring us brochures, say if they were doing a health brochure, they'd ask if our community groups would, you know, we review them and look at them. Oh, and, excellent. I mean, that kind of thing. So so it was, uh, so, so that to me and to see the people grow, Yes. And doing it, that was the proudest those thing for wins. me. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely, you know. Um, one thing that really <clears throat> struck me yesterday, and so I, I'm going to tap you on the shoulder for another project that you don't know about yet. Oh, okay, thank but, you for sharing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. FYI. <laughs> um, but yesterday during your acceptance speech, you were uh, really, um, I, I loved your review of how you educate communities about race and racism. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I want to talk about the impact that your approach to teaching, not just our community, the African-American community, mm -hmm, about mm -hmm, race and racism. Right. You know, how have you been able to utilize, you know, that curriculum to, um, you know, teach, you know, majority communities, mm -hmm. you know, communities who are of means. Yeah. Uh, tell us about that, how it's received and maybe some of the key ways that you've been able to translate this information in a way that's meaningful and hits home. Mm -hmm. I think um, I think I probably got into that more doing that when I was at, Mar when I was at Marquette. Okay. Because teaching the students, you know, because sure. again, you're, you're you're teaching students who are all different kind of ages, and for me, I was the only I was the only black faculty there, you know. And I started doing stuff that I do anyway, but um, I, I stayed away from teaching the culture and health class because that's what they assumed I was teaching, mm. not community health, you know, I mean, you know, the real stuff. Right. As right. it is, you know, so, but I did start, but before I left, I took it a couple of times and I teach it. But when I have students from Marquette, even them getting used to me, because they didn't have, they weren't used to having black faculty. Because sure. even when I went to Marquette, I'd walk around the campus and folks would be like, oh, hey, what program are you? Working on, and I'm, I said, "Well, I'm teaching at Marquette. I'm teaching nursing. Really? Right. Your faculty? Right. You on the Gold Coast? I mean, it was the Gold Coast. It's a university. Isn't that what they should be doing? Unbeknown to me, exactly. That, that was so rare. You know, right. I, and I started going like I usually do. I started going looking up, and out of 405 something faculty, they only had like six black folks, and only two that were tenured. And I was like. Oh, okay. So I guess I was rare. You're a unicorn. Getting that type of stuff, right? Yes, so, but yes. but from there, I, I negotiated with the dean for that 25% of my time would be a multicultural <coughs> setting, and that I would 
we'd have a group together and work with students okay. to learn about the community and to talk about their own experiences. And, and, and I also did, uh, as students were coming in, if they were students of color, they would get referred to me or advocate, or even if I was in a meeting I, with that, you know, because they would have students they're looking at to accept in the school, and if they had Hispanic name, they automatically wanted to refer them to English as a second language, and I'd be like, wait a minute, why do you know they need that? Now, if they were coming from Paris or right. other places, they didn't do that. Right. <laughs> you know, I said, well, I think, I think it's fair that we should ask, but we shouldn't just make the assumption they can't speak go. English. Yeah, they're applying to come in. Those kind of things, dealing with the faculty, you know, to get them to know that, and then working with the students who started to begin to advocate again for themselves. But I did have this trick, and when I had my class, I would, the first couple classes, I would tell the students, I said, now you guys, I need you to all sit in the same seat for a couple weeks. I said, because you know, you, you all look alike to me. And there was this about two second dead silence, and then they'd bust out laughing. And I'm like, oh, you just think we all look alike? You know? But I could only do it a few times because they told everybody. Hey, uh, they would tell the other students, you know, but it was priceless just seeing their faces for a while because they're like, what? <laughs> And, uh, but, but it helped me as well as helping the students get more comfortable. Broke you know? the ice, absolutely. I broke the ice rub, they would just crack up. And I mean, I never, my, my clinical was always full. My classes were always full. They, they liked learning. And I took that out into when I started doing the community education the same way. Like I've developed this training module around trauma and resiliency and uh, uh, the, the Hmong Women's Association asked me to to teach them about it. Okay. So what I did was, I mean, the one I did, you have the you have the principal things of it, and then I talked to them about African American culture, what they do. So when I did with them, I used that as a way of showing them this is what we did for African Americans, but you will take this now and do it for you, not this thing that well, I'm gonna tell you what to do for Hmong women. I don't think so, but I'm amazed that some people think. You know, they have the one thing, all sides fits all, you know. Sure, sure, sure. So, I, so doing that, I think, uh, and we worked, um, we, had a, we had a state grant for about 10 years on tobacco, and so we, we worked with people, we worked, so we were the Black Health Coalition had that for the whole state, and then we worked with, UMOS was the Hispanic side, and then we had the Native side. Okay. So they did their piece, you know. So we had folks who did from all the different cultures, and it was great because we put in there that we would learn some things about their culture, not make assumptions, and they would learn about ours. It, it, it was a great, it was a great relationship. Sounds like a cross-cultural cross learning experience. Absolutely. So what are those things about culture that are that cross the lines, no matter what your culture is? Sure. You know, and then and then what are the things that are unique to the culture, and unique because maybe the, even the state you're in. You know, black folks aren't the same as they are in, you know, say, Georgia, where my mom came from, and those kind of things. You have to keep that in mind if you're always learning. You can't just put people in little boxes, you yes. know. And so I took those same things and put it, like, out in the community that way. And then, then about five, oh, something almost ten years now, then we, did, we were looking at Milwaukee has the highest, Wisconsin has the highest incarceration rate of black males in the, in the United States. And it's all, yeah, and it's almost, and frankly, almost the world, because the United States has the highest incarceration of black males. So we've got them in Milwaukee, where that goes, and it always, they kind of look like you, yeah, when I say that, but it's true. The, uh, it, it's, it's just, unf 
so we thought, okay, we got to do something special. We started doing the trauma stuff. Yes. And so we worked worked it out where we were allowed to come into uh, the House of Corrections, which is the county facility. Okay. Um, and we would start, we started training and work with the guy that works with me, and we did men first. But we, we set up this two-hour presentation and... Um, on trauma? On trauma. Okay. And we couldn't get out the room. I mean, the questions, the comments, we actually had to come back do it another part of it <coughs> for them to ask questions, you know, and I, you know, I tell them like this, it's, it's hard for people to recognize that, that these are human beings who maybe have made a mistake, but what has happened to them? We don't look to see, you know, if you just say, well, they're black and they're poor, so that's probably why they're in there. No. Right. You know, you, you get that. And they were, it's fascinating to hear them. And then, and then we opened it up. I mean, we targeted African Americans, but it was open up to everybody who would come. Sure, so, sure. so we had some Russian, Russian refugees in, and they started talking and got other folks. I mean, you when they're comfortable enough to know that we're not penalized, but they would ask questions. And certainly, we wanted them to understand fatherhood. What was such an issue when you're in jail? What does that mean? What happens as a father? And sure. they really got into that. Like I said, so much. We, you know, we were doing even when we lost the grant, we were doing it. We still would go in once a month and do that education, which they, they really approve. Like I said, they have people like, why are you in there? Well, if nothing else, they're not in prison yet. Maybe we can help them not you know, end up in prison. And, that, and that, that was always a part of what we were doing. People were always like, well, why are you doing that? It's like they're just, they're a lost generation, just kind of throw them away. Um, they're not. They're not human beings, like well, you said. Well, no, seriously. The, yeah. No, you know, they can't do that. And, and then the other part of that, which is a major part of the work I've been doing the last 10 years, mm -hmm. is the child welfare system. Okay. Because when you look at uh, what people talk about in terms of who people are, then it, again, in, in Milwaukee, they take away more kids than they absolutely should. There's just no way the number of kids we have, it, but, it's, but it's that implicit, I mean, I can't get over that. Like I can say you don't have that language, but that implicit bias language you got folks who's thinking they're doing a great job because God, you say they have all this, they have the violence and they're doing this and doing that. We're rescuing. I mean, they can't go to Kosovo or Haiti, so they're rescuing these kids and putting them in predominantly white homes. I mean, would disallow a uh, family or friends to take the kids? I mean, ones that we knew could take them. They really, yeah, they. It, it, it is a mess. It is a mess, and so. That, that has been, and I actually ended up filing an uh, Office of Civil Rights suit against one course, we have one family where they just never should have taken that child from that woman. The child was, was the lead poison, you know, so he, at three, so he would have sometimes some, but she was the only one that could help him. She was one of the most loving moms I, I ever knew, but they decided that she shouldn't have this child. And now we're traumatized with two people. Okay, yeah, yeah, it was interesting because they said, well, it's a trauma bond, they called it, but that's a negative mm -hmm. bond. Because even the judge asked them about the child and well, what was he saying about, well, he wants to go to, he, he, said, he told them he's being good because he wants to go home to his mother. And the judge was even like, so what's wrong with that? And that's when they made up this whole, I mean, they just really made up this whole thing about, about her and... And like I said, plus I know, and I tell people, you know, we, because that was the time, too, we had our federal grant. And so we were working with a lot of moms, with pregnant moms, and with kids and stuff like that. Sure. And some, we had to turn some in. I mean, we weren't this goody two-shoes where you just don't do it at all. No. 
If we got the families that can't do what they need to do, our, our problem. Call our, a spade a spade. It's a spade. It's for the kids, you know. Yeah. And so we would. So they knew that they we were. But but the number of kids that were taken away from homes that we saw that should not have been or weren't given to the grandmas or help, it's it was unbelievable. So I'm hoping now that because there's a change. I don't know if you're aware there's a change in the welfare law now. Okay, I'm not. Yeah, they because in the 1990s, I also talk about some of the other reasons that we ended up working in the jail and working these other places because there were three major pieces of legislation. Okay. The first one was the crime bill. And as I mentioned, we got more black men incarcerated than anybody else. The second was when uh, uh, that, <coughs> excuse me, the second was when AFDC went to TANF because AFDC provided at least, a, I think it was like a seven or $800 basic income and helping. They, they got rid of that, and plus they limited it to, you can, they turned to TANF, uh, you had to work to get the money, you know. Is, they, this, is this, this was this, a federal subsidy this is federal. To, yeah. to, to, to families? Right, but it wasn't a subsidy to families, it, was, it actually was a subsidy to the organizations that okay. were running. The families couldn't hardly get, the families couldn't get anything. Okay, gotcha. Which was different from, like I said, the regular AFDC that modeled more of the European style that that they will give if, you know if you know the difference in the european style that all of most most of those countries have a, 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 a what they call a subsidy you know subsidiary they give them something sure, you, know, sure. you know and that's what afdc did and okay. they they totally Got took that, that out right okay. and then the third thing was the change in the welfare law the child welfare law the, up until that time the child welfare law was family preservation uh, they changed it to foster care and adoption Mm. And 90% of the money went to foster care and adoption. Mm. So they justified putting the kids in foster care because they said, we don't have money to help you if the kids aren't in foster care. Do you see what I'm saying? How policy and, and even would... destabilized all those families. Yes, it did. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we, we've been talking to several of our um, guests about you know, the systemic level of racism and how that That's has right. been you know, part of the source of the deconstruction and destabilizing of you know of our you know African American right. communities across the country uh, some mm -hmm. levels you know our mm -hmm. Latino Hispanic communities not for as long of a period of right, time right but how if, if if this is the ocean and this is what the ocean this is the, the ocean that us as fish are swimming mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. that this is how vast the depth and breadth of the problem right. is and so you're bringing bringing a lot of awareness to us, um, you know, on the state level. Right, in terms of what's yes, of, happening. What's happening. And, and it, I was going to tell you one other sure. thing before I forget you, I'm old, so no, no. I forget things. <laughs> Go so, right ahead. Let me tell you why I still remember it. <laughs> but, 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 uh, but another thing, all of a sudden I got a call, and from, from uh, and these were, these were uh, lawyers who were working with uh, defense lawyers who were trying to work with these families to keep okay. their kids and stuff. And they called about, and they said, well, we want to meet with you. And I wasn't sure what it was all about, but I was like, okay, let's meet. Sure. But they were telling me that what they were finding was that a lot of these black children who were adopted and then put in homes that were out in the hinterlands out there, that, and because there are two pretty much areas of, uh, your inner identity is between like two to five, right? And then your outward identity starts around 11 to 15, 16. So the inner identity seemed okay because the kids all thought they were just same as all the white friends and everybody else. When it started getting to 11 to 15, and they're up north and don't have any family or anything, they were starting to have problems. And so these families 
were having problems with these kids, and so they were bringing them back. They adopted, true story, true story. They were bringing them back. And so they, they were, <laughs> so they came, they were talking to me about it, and I'm looking at them like, really? I said, so, but the, bad, the worst part about it was that they were suggesting, and they, didn't even, they were even looking at maybe changing the law. You know, because these kids, all these kids obviously had their parental rights terminated. Sure. That's how they got adopted in the first place. So their thing was, you're looking at, by now you're looking at kids between maybe 15, 18 years of age. Even if there was a valid reason for the children to be taken in the first place, could we go back and look at those families? You know, possibly, because then you don't worry about, risk is the same because they're old enough to say if something's happening to them. And they, again, they weren't even sure it could be done, but I, I applaud them for at least thinking about it, right? And uh, because what they were doing was putting these, bringing these kids back to Milwaukee and putting them in group homes with kids who were having obviously all kinds of problems. But they had been growing up in the suburbs or... Or, or hinterlands, as I said, way up north, other places. And yeah, and they bring them, put them in these group homes with kids who were having multiple problems and, you know, may have been stealing stuff, may have been doing all this kind of stuff and everything. So they were trying to... But, you know, we don't have... Uh, Walker anymore, but you know this black woman they had who was over, and she was like absolutely not. And 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 you couldn't. It was interesting because you couldn't. It's almost like they hid it because you can't just automatically take back a, an adoption. Right. So they didn't do that. They just put these kids in there, and I would keep asking. They love to see me come to meetings. I would come and ask. Well, could you, I'm a little confused. Could you help me? And they're like, like my dad used to say, this child's never been confused a day in her life. <laughs> you know. <laughs> So I'd be confused, like I'm trying to figure out what's going on here, what's happening with these kids, you know. And I said, so could you give me some kind of number? Oh, we're, we're not, we don't have to, we're not required to keep data on kids who are returned. Kids who are returned. returned. You hear that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Look, I, I gotta stop talking to you right oh, now. Okay, I'm sorry. You're getting me all fired no, say, no, say, up. I'm sorry. I can't do anything about. <laughs> Is that frustrating? <laughs> Well, you know, it just it's just disappointing, but it just speaks to the breadth and depth of your work. And mm -hmm. I mean, over a 30 year period, I, you know, I love the fact that you went from education to advocacy from the um, university setting into the community, into the correction system, into the child welfare. <laughs> yeah. And I think it just speaks, you know, and it, maybe it empowers our listeners that, you know, you um, and your community can have a significant effect um, in a positive way yeah, on yes. you know on your community because it's your community like you said for us by us mm -hmm. right and we That's know it. that that concept uh, breeds sustainability and empowerment so um, I just want to thank you for being with us today and oh, for sharing welcome. I'm all inspired and fired up <laughs> so I can't thank you enough for your for your time and inspiration well thank you for thinking I had something to say oh you had more than something a little bit you know, time I appreciate it yes for us to learn from and thank you listeners for tuning in to another episode of the health disparities podcast join us again at movement is life caucus.com or you can subscribe to the podcast at itunes google spotify and stitcher new episodes post every two weeks and look out for our special series featuring additional thought leaders from our partner organizations across the country who are vested in decreasing health care disparities and increasing health equity with passion and purpose thank you so much <laughs>